Well, in the 11th century, there was a king who got so tired of being king. It was King Henry III of Bavaria. He got so tired of the life of a monarch. Tough living, right? He got so tired of being a king that he goes to a local monastery to enlist. And as he gets there, there's this Father Richard. And Father Richard looks at him and he asks him the question, do you realize that joining a monastery is a life of service and obedience? And you... No offense, king, but you've been raised as a king in a royal house, at a royal table. And he goes, I know, but I've had it. I know this is what I want to do because anything's got to be better than that. And he says, please, just take me into your order. And he says, I will follow you with full obedience and whoever God leads you. And Father Richard says back to him, he says, okay, then. Go back to your throne, serve faithfully, and grow where you've already been placed. I tell you that story because there is in all of us a weariness that comes with our station in life. We are all being tempted by a greener pasture, by a myth that someone's got it a little bit better. Or if I could just change this, if I could just earn this, if I could just do this, then somehow life would be better. And the reality is, is that where you live is not an accident. Who you know is not a coincidence. God has placed all of us with these unique set of experiences, opportunities, giftings with the idea that wherever we are, we could be faithful and grow where we're planted rather than somehow recreate or reintroduce because we think somehow it could be better somewhere else. Tonight, I want to just unpack, take a next step. We have been looking at the what is the impact of the resurrection. This idea that if we, if Christ was raised from the dead, how does how does that change our lives in any quantifiable way? And so, I want to look at a passage of scripture. If you're here today, or if you're watching at home, you can open up the app and follow along there. We have some scripture and an outline under the notes section, and I want to turn. Have you turn with me to um, 1 John chapter 5. Now, I have to say, about 25 years ago, I read this for the very first time, and it was like walking into a wall. I was raised in the church. I got Christianity down. I knew how to get my gold stars. I knew how to play the game. But this was something impactful. Jonathan and Grace, I know you need to go. You're leading. They have a church plant of their own, um, Mission Community Church. Uh, And so Pastor Jonathan is going to go pastor there, but we wanted to take the opportunity as kind of our our sister church to have them come. So minglaba and goodbye. Thank you so much. Uh, I know some of you wanted to be able to visit with them afterward, but we'll plan something again here soon. Um, So 
here's what's interesting about this passage is that we need to understand how the resurrection impacts the lives of believers. Not just people who go, oh, I know about God, but who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And John writes this letter about obedience to Christ um, and he uses a family metaphor in which to instruct us on what it looks like. So I thought, this is perfect for what it means to be an extended family of faith. Because if one of us struggles, the rest of us come alongside and start to pray and intercede and bring meals and suffer as well. That's what it means to be in Christian community. Going to church isn't just checking a box. Going to church is being invested in the lives of people and subsequently affecting the city in which we live for good, more so than we can do on our own. So this metaphor of a family is particularly moving, um, and I don't want us to miss it. So he opens up in John, 1 John chapter 5. It's just towards the end of the Bible. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ... Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Except if they treat me bad. No, 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 no. Just because your sister doesn't play nice doesn't mean you quit loving her. Am I right? I mean, this is Parenting 101. This is how we know that we love children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So when we are talking about resurrection, we've talked about being resurrected with a new identity. We're talking about resurrected with a new boldness. Today, I want to talk about what it means to be resurrected with a new kind of love that, watch this, leads to obedience. Because he used some language here that was problematic for me. Listen, see if this kind of trips you up. Like I said, it was like running into a wall. In fact, dear friends, this is love for God, that you obey or keep his commands. I'm like, hold on now. We'll get along as long as I do what you say. That doesn't sound like a, a really dynamic relationship. That sounds a little bit authoritative, tyrannical. But then he goes on to say, and my commands are not burdensome. This is love for God, that you would keep his commands. Oh, and by the way, his commands aren't burdensome. Verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory uh, that has overcome the world. So let me just break this down a little bit. Commands aren't a burden, not because they're light or easy to obey, but as John explains, the person born of, of God by faith gets the Holy Spirit to live the life that you are called to live that you cannot live on your own. We can't just do behavior modification and call it victorious Christian living. We can't just watch our language and try not to be as bad as the next person and think that we're better than them. What happens is, in light of the resurrection, we get the deposit of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is now a new spiritual muscle that can be flexed and grow so that we can not have life go easier, but we can obey, uh, have the power and uh, for obedience in our lives. This is the infilling work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is where it comes down to brass tacks. If religion to you has felt like rules, if religion has felt sort of restrictive, um, if, if somehow love for others feels stagnant to you, 
if obeying God feels more like a chore than an opportunity, then I think we might be missing the point. That feels like stale religion. See, now the good thing about stale religion, the good thing about religious rules is you always know where you stand because you can either go, yeah, I got that one, I got that one, I got that one, I'm doing good, like a report card. But once you walk into this new relational dynamic, it moves past the rules and you're like, this is whom I love, why would I not want to do this? This is my kid, why wouldn't I want to not have a free Saturday for 18 years? Mom, dad, are you with me? I mean, this is what we're saying. We are saying, I'm going to kiss away discretionary spending because I've got young kids. We're saying, like, I'm losing sleep. Why? Because I've got children. To honor the Lord in how I love my children that's what it looks like when he says, my commands, they're not even burdensome. Listen, kids are work, but they're not a burden. See what I'm saying? And so there is in this group that John is writing to a young church, probably young families, and he's using and unpacking this family metaphor about what it means to grow in love for God. And he's talking about growing in obedience. resurrection now who is it in verse 5 that overcomes the world only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God well I believe he's a good prophet I believe that he's a good man no 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 no. I believe that he's actually the son of God because that is the hinge pin on which Christianity swings and and basically separates itself from every other world religion because no other god in the history of religions has a has a story of suffrage and then you have someone who conquers life on earth not everyone's got a story about eternal life but this is what is setting christianity apart and what john wants to communicate this is the one and pick up the imagery here the one who came by water and blood jesus christ he did not he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. Now, right here, water is symbolizing, obviously, the baptism. And the blood represents the crucifixion. And he's talking about the newness of life. Now, these are, mes- these are mentioned because Jesus' public ministry really began at 30 years old at where? His baptism. And then where does he go? To his crucifixion. A couple of things, real quick. We choose to practice what's called believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is the way of Jesus that says, I am choosing to walk out into the wilderness and be immersed and come about. Because we want every individual Christ follower to make that choice. It's not a legalistic thing. We don't think that baptism creates a salvation any more than not being baptized but it is a declaration publicly of faith and so what we see in the early part of luke luke chapter 2 is is mary and joseph bringing the child to the temple courts for a kind of dedication and simeon was there and the prophetess anyway 
But that's the important thing to know in the grand scheme of today's child dedication. Really significant and why we practice the way we do. Here's where it gets kind of interesting in John's writing, though. Not surprising, everyone didn't think the same. I know it's like, oh, wasn't everyone good and, and, and all like in agreement? No, there was a belief back then called Gnosticism. Gnosticism had a, a, a lot of traction. One feature of it was that it believed that you could separate what was human or the physical world from the spiritual world. So in other words, it didn't matter how you acted because that was in the physical arena and the spiritual world was separate completely from that. And what we know is that those things are integrated and we cannot separate them. But another key feature, and this is what John is writing to in this Gnostic faith, was that there was a belief that Jesus was born completely human and then only at his baptism where heaven opens up, God speaks and the dove descends, did he actually become divine. And then he stayed the son of God only until he's hanging on the cross in his last breath crying out, what? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm getting spam called while I'm preaching. That is just awesome. <laughs> Uh, but so there's only roughly three and a half years that Gnostics would believe that Jesus is actually deity, which we do not believe. And John is spending the whole time through his books, not just the gospel of John, but in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, trying to explain that Jesus is entirely the son of God from birth to death. Now, the reason that becomes such a big issue such a, a linchpin issue, is that if Jesus died only as a man, it would not have had enough weight to take away our guilt, the guilt and, and of our sin. And so he's writing, trying to convince these people in such a way, this young church, this small house gathering, uh, and, and trying to help them understand that Jesus was fully God. So uh, the resurrection means that we can not be perfect, but the resurrection means that we can be obedient followers of Christ because of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, I was listening to an interview uh, this week with um, Tim Keller. If you don't know Tim Keller, I encourage you to wade deep into the waters of Tim Keller. Uh, he is a retired pastor uh, who pastored for about 30 years. Not because he didn't have anything left, uh, but because he was doing some legacy building. They've created a whole church planting network. He's a brilliant man, but in the last year, he's been battling pancreatic cancer. So he's got one of these guys that just has experience and wisdom on his side, but he's also battling cancer. And so when he starts to talk, you just start to tune in because he's got something to say. And as he was talking about this idea, he commented on how we often don't even know what to do with the resurrection practically. See, we all would say, or many would say, yes, Jesus was raised from the life. I believe in the resurrection, which proves that he's, in fact, the Son of God. And what that means is that now we have all this kind of hope and a kind of future in things to come. That the story you're writing, that the failures you're facing don't have to be the final word because there's this new hope that we have in Christ Jesus that he will return and restore all things. But what does that mean for Monday morning? What does that mean for me 
practically. And this is where he starts to break down. Um, the, uh, the New Testament also teaches that when Jesus Christ died and came back, he brought the powers of the age to come. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is the same spirit that can indwell and infill the life of every Christ not just follow and obey Jesus. But I have this increasing work, potentially, of the Holy Spirit that gives me the power to follow and love God, not as a chore, not as an obligation, but out of love. That's what the resurrection means. And so Jesus comes with the powers of the age. Now, um, the power that will completely, again, Jesus is going to be returning for the restoration of all things. What will that look like? It's the power that completely cleansed the world of suffering and death at the end of time. And what's beautiful about it is that the same spirit is already at least partially at work today. Not fully, but in part. And so when we read verse 4, if that sounded a little confusing, because it did to me, it says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. He's talking about something past and something present. This is really significant to understand how the Holy Spirit is in operation. Because the initial victory that comes has overcome. But then in the continuing day-by-day victory in Christian living overcomes. So what you face tomorrow, you can overcome. What offense you have to deal with tomorrow, you can overcome. Everything becomes a new story to write in Christ that can mean new life. So obedience becomes totally doable in light of who the Holy Spirit is. Now, Keller goes on to say, he talks about the resurrection keeps me from being both naive and cynical. This is really important in our sort of um, thought process and in the public debate today. Because he talks about it as the resurrection pulls me back to what is true. Again, we're talking about a kingdom of God that is present and at hand, but also not fully realized yet. It's, all, it's already and yet not yet. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we have these moments on earth that feel like hell on earth. And then all of a sudden, something beautiful and glorious break into it, maybe miraculously, maybe just servant-heartedly. But it changes the narrative, and we go, that felt like heaven on earth. And what we experience is the world that God actually intended. And that works both ways. And what we're given is this sort of taste for the things to come, for what God intended from the beginning. But when Jesus returns, we'll be able to restore all things. Now, here's where it breaks down. You can either go one extreme or the other. You can be a real cynic and you go, well, I prayed for healing and it didn't happen. Or it might happen. Or it did. Or you could be given towards, well, I'm going to go out and try and legislate injustice and corruption and greed and racism. And you might have some moderate success, but you will not eradicate it. That will only happen when Jesus returns and restores all things to how God intended. Right? 
And so there's this picture to say, well, don't, let's not be naive about it. But on the other hand, we can be way too pessimistic to pray because, well, God just doesn't answer prayers today. God doesn't work like that. He doesn't do miracles anymore. Or culture is just going to hell in a handbasket. It just keeps getting worse and spiraling out of control. And so maybe I'll just retreat until Jesus comes or I die. And I'm saying, and what Tim Keller is saying, the power of the age to come resides in you as a Christian now, and amazing things can happen today. So I'd like to ask you, to what extent does your prayer life actually require faith? Are you stuck on safety prayers, bless me prayers? Or are you actually engaging the Holy Spirit of God for overcoming prayers? for healing prayers, for victory prayers. Because that's what actually develops the muscle called faith that actually has this chance to get stronger. See, the resurrection is always needs to be paired with the death of Christ. Both those things together save us. So to experience new life, there's always going to be a letting go. There's always going to be a death. There's going to be a confession. There's going to be a surrender because on the far side of that becomes new life. And you and I will always and continually, starting tomorrow, experience moments of weakness. And the beauty of it is the weakness moments, the failure moments, the stumbling moments don't have to be the final word. Jesus' death and resurrection means you and I get to be born again and again and again. That's good news. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Elizabeth Elliot. She went in the 50s with her husband, uh, Jim Elliot, to, to this cannibalistic, unreached people group in like the Amazon jungle called the Aka Indians. They had no written dialect. But her husband was with Mission Aviation Fellowship and would start flying over and they recognized these people and they were building relationships and they start dropping resources and supplies just trying to communicate with this tribe of people till finally they said, we're going to land on a sandbar. And these five men got out as good missionaries would and this savage tribe who had never seen white people before killed them. Well, she's a Bible translator. She went on to be an amazing Bible teacher. She taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and she would always say these words, that everything in the Christian life is a resurrection after death. You know what she did? As a Bible, She went from a new, that language that she was translating, which actually had its own written, to now translating the Aka language when it had no written script so that she could now learn the language. And what did she do? Grab their two-year-old daughter and go back to serve among the Akas. Took a little while before they realized who she was, that they had killed her husband. What a testimony, right? So when someone like Elizabeth Elliot says, everything in life is a resurrection after death, she's got the street cred to back it up. And here's what she says. So for instance, if somebody wrongs me, I have a choice. I can go back to them and try and get even. I can pay them back. I could, I could hurt them because I'm hurting. Or I can choose to forgive them in my heart before God, lay the offense at their feet so that they know how their choices affected me and put it in God's hands. And what are we doing now? We're now stepping in to resurrection territory. We're moving into a miracle that God can potentially sow seeds of new life, potentially even resurrect the relationship. And she's saying everything.
is like that. Everything you face has a chance to be born again and to be made new. Every time we obey God, we're dying to ourselves in hopes of finding new life as a person of virtue. Everything in life is about death and resurrection. And this is love for God, that you would obey my commands. Oh, but by the way, my commands are not burdensome because the resurrection changes everything. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I pray for the power of obedience through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that we would experience a kind of fresh calling, a fresh anointing, maybe even an awakening that we have yet to know because we have not understood what your Holy Spirit is capable of. We have not committed ourselves to following you. I pray that you would bring a spirit of revelation and that you would speak to our hearts and our minds about the offenses that we keep, about the sins that we keep stumbling over, about the narrative that we're believing. And I pray that you would bring us uh, to a place of deliverance and hope. I pray that you would help us understand how the resurrection gives us the chance to experience something new in you. I pray that the testimony of the resurrection would be not just in us individually, but corporately, and that you would raise up a church who is set apart to do your work and rewrite a narrative of injustice and rewrite a, a narrative of poverty and racism, that you would make us agents of heaven and, and ministers of reconciliation. And I pray that you would do that in me as well as you do that in our church. We pray this now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All God's people said...